How's everybody doing tonight? You ready for our third week in the uh, Winning the War in Your Mind series? Hey, somebody's excited. Uh, I have a friend who I won't name tonight, but just as I was coming down the aisle and I was thinking about this as we were worshiping and taking communion, I think he meant it as a compliment. But he's like, are you speaking tonight? And I said, yeah. And he's like, oh, I love it when you talk on mental stuff. I'm working on that. We'll talk this week. I think he, I really think he meant it. I'm going to take it as a compliment. All right. Okay. I'm going to spin that baby positive and uh, we're going to take it from there. Well, my name is Ryan. If you are uh, new or visiting Impact, I'm the executive pastor here. It's my joy and privilege to be able to share the word of God with you tonight. And I hope to charge you up in a way that, that just scales you into the week, that it compels you so that you leave here with a desire to be all that you can be for the kingdom of God in every context and place that you go. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. Okay, the the first thing we're going to talk about right out of the gates is this problem that we have as humans, I believe because we are in a sinful state at birth and so automatically we have a gravitational pull to self-destruct and that self-destruction often takes the, the, the form of extreme negativity, right? That's right. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go all Pollyanna positivity on you tonight. For those of you who are like, oh, those pessimists in the room, they're like, oh, great. This is going to be about positive mindset. Okay. But what I am interested in doing is looking at the kind of mindset that Jesus says he gives us when he saves us and calls us into following him. We should want that. And for me, uh, very early in my childhood, I was bent a certain way that I believe I will probably deal with until the day that I pass. Not that Christ doesn't have dominion over this particular bent, but it was so ingrained in me that it is one of the, nar- the primary narratives that I run all the time. And it, it went something like this. I'll give you the example first. As a child, I parents that work so hard and man am I blessed with a killer work ethic okay now I love you all but I bet you I can work you into the ground all right some of you are like yeah let's see okay let's let's go my parents and the, the dairy farm that we were a part of, there was always work to do. And the more you worked, the longer you worked, the harder you worked, the more you got done, the more you accomplished, the more fruit was born from that labor. And so at a really early age, that started to be ingrained and instilled in me. Another thing they cared deeply about was academics and applying yourself and working hard and trying you know, to scaffold and advance your intelligence. And they did a phenomenal job. And this is really on me. And over the years, I've had to, I've had to reckon with the fact that this is on me. But what ended up happening is I got to the place in my, in my childhood even where the performance of a 98% on a test meant only one thing. It meant I had left 
on, on the field and that I, that I hadn't given it my all and that it wasn't good enough and that it wasn't worthwhile. You, you starting to feel that narrative? Some of you are shaking your heads because that makes sense to you. Some of you are like, I never in a million years would think that I'd have been thrilled with a 98% on anything I did. In the work environment, if the hole for the post wasn't just perfectly level and plumb, because that's how my dad could do it with his eyes closed. I'd get done, I'd sweat, I'd work, I'd toil, and I'd put that post in and I'd step back and it's just, I don't think it's good enough. I don't know if I did enough. This pattern of thinking went like this. Here's, here's the thought pattern. I'm only as good as what I do or accomplish. And what I do isn't good unless it's perfect. And nothing is perfect unless it's 100% effort. It's got to be 100% effort every time. And it's got to be 100% right. Now think with me as that starts to play out in practical realities as a human being. As you can imagine, along the way, I started to develop a negative mindset toward myself that sounds something like this in my head. Your performance, your performance isn't perfect. And the reason it wasn't perfect is that you didn't work hard enough or give everything you had. And since it wasn't perfect, it wasn't good enough. And since it wasn't good enough, you aren't any good. This has been mastering me or seeking to master me most of my life. And truthfully, guys, up until a couple of years ago, when I hit some walls, that absolutely no amount of effort and no amount of right was possible. I didn't necessarily have to deal with these things with Jesus. I want to just for a second talk about this in practical application, okay? When I get up here and I share the word of God, oh, do I consider it a privilege? I want you to be moved and changed. I want you to be more like Jesus when you walk out of here. I want you to affect and influence the world in the extraordinary and powerful ways that he has called you to affect and influence the world. But there are about 400 of you in here tonight. 400 individuals of you. And no matter how hard I try, and no matter how much I work at it, only about 15 of you are going to write me and say, hey, great job. <laughs> the numbers stop working. The 98% ain't even in the playing cards, my friends. There's no way for me to know I have to give it, I have to offer it, and I have to say, Jesus, you take it. And we hope that 100% of you were affected by the word of God but I don't get to know that. So if I let that negative narrative run, no performance, nothing I do is gonna be good enough when I get up here to preach. Right. Now I want you to think with me about counseling. 
sitting with a couple that every single thing that they have done up to this point in their marriage has contributed to a crumbling foundation and a disastrous future. And they're sitting there and they're saying, please help me, help us. I will offer 100%. I'll, I'll do everything I can, but how that plays out and what sort of grade I get, you see what this does? I won't, I won't know, and if I let it, and something continues to spiral and that relationship doesn't work, that negative narrative attacks. In neuroscience, these proclivities and natural brain tendencies are called this. They're cognitive bias. And that means a mistake in reasoning based on personal experience, memories, or preferences. We're going to pull this apart tonight. Because I believe that this is so powerful. Either so powerful stopping you or can be a catalyst into our future. Very often... The, the, our cognitive biases lean towards hardcore negativity about ourself. Listen, I looked, I researched the American Psychological Association, all sorts of different uh, groups, and I found these four things. As human beings, our nature is to remember traumatic experiences better than positive ones. Recall insults better than praise. Think about negative things more frequently than positive ones and respond more strongly to negative events than to equally positive ones. This is 100% of human beings that lean towards this tendency and have this proclivity in existence. It's a problem. It'll stop us cold. This week, in our material, in, in our uh, devotional material, Craig Rochelle said this, the life you have is often a reflection of the thoughts you think. If you have a negative mind, it's almost impossible to have a positive life. And you know what I believe? Despite the difficulties, despite the challenges, despite the suffering, and despite the pain, I believe one of the most powerful testimonies of a follower of Jesus is that their life is a positive, fruit-producing, beautiful thing that other people can look at and say, are you kidding me? How are they doing that? But if, if these tendencies, if negativity takes over, either in your own framework, it causes you to stop moving, to stop advancing, to quit, to play the victim mentality, or it causes all the people around you to feel the, the disgust, the disdain, or your particular perspective on everything that they do or the events that you're a part of as negative. Debbie Downer, negative Nancy. I'm sorry, ladies, that it's just the, the women that get named in that. I don't know why that is. When, listen, when our foundational thought constructs about ourselves and the world around us are degenerative, 
and destructive, the lives we build on those faulty frames begin to crumble and fall apart. Now, who does this sound like? Jesus in his message on the mountain in Matthew. Matthew chapter seven, if you're interested. He said this, and I want to focus on it for a second. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, listen, I'm going to stop right there. Hears these words of mine is not like a sound that you heard, but in the language Jesus is using in the, in the original translation, this meant that you would take hold of those words, that you would ruminate on those words, that you would chew the cud of those words, that you would ingest that into your existence and that you would so dwell on it that you would begin to live out of his words. And he doesn't stop there. He says, it can't just be that. You've got to activate it. You have to take action on what I've said. And then he goes on, he says, we'll be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Okay, our minds, our mental framework and the foundation that we build out of is absolutely critical to our approach to the good purposes that God has called us into. He goes on, he says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. See, see the foundation, the framing of the foundation, how you've been built, what has happened to you, what has etched those pathways or begun to erode that foundation that is crucial that we take agency, the agency that he has given us to begin to listen to the voice of our good shepherd and move into the things that he has called us to move into because we believe that we can hear his words and that we can do his words. That should change everything about our daily existence. Look at these pictures. This first picture is a house along Lake Michigan. So if you didn't trust Jesus' example, take a look at what happens to the houses that are not built with preparation towards the futures. You could say when the waves came, what happened to this house? It looks pretty spectacularly like a disaster to me. Let's go to the next one. This occurs when the foundation sinks and drops. Beautiful. It's another interesting uh, factor to me as I was looking through some different pictures. It doesn't matter the beauty of the house. It doesn't matter the size of the house, the wealth of the house, even how well the walls of the house may have been built. If the foundation crumbles, that puppy is going down. And then this last one. I thought that was just funny. You think anybody's going to rent that? You, you think anybody's going to want to be in that, around that? They're not. Don DePani said it this way. He said, I live in my house, therefore I don't trash my house. I live in my mind, therefore I don't trash my mind. 
Our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. We've said that the last two weeks. We're going to say it again next week. And unless, listen, unless we decide to break bad patterns, our lives will continue moving in the same wrong direction, in a circle that never goes anywhere. It's a cycle. It's a cycle that keeps dragging us down into this toxic cesspool or a massive sinkhole that just opens underneath of us and sucks the goodness out of us and seeks to destroy us. That can be our own mind that can do that to us or, or, You can take the agency, we can take the agency that God has given us, the creative agency that we alone possess as human beings, and you can change that mind. That's extraordinary. Groeschel said it this way, the filters you have shape how you see life. Change the filter, change how you feel. It's not the facts that are different, it's the frame. How many times do we see this as people? I see it with my kids all the time. So it's evident in the innocence of our childhood. I'll have one child that will get out of bed in the morning and she will be like, yes, yes, I'm awake. What do I get to do? I have another child that will get out of bed in the morning and she will say, I cannot believe that God thought it was a good idea to give me life. It sucks. These waffles, where did you get them? Those eggs, I will not eat them. Your clothes, Dad, they're ugly. I'm not going to school. Why are, why are, why are you not going to school? It's too cold. As John said earlier, then go to Florida, dear. We, we have the ability to change the filter and to see what God is doing. Yeah. That's right. And as his children, we have to learn how to do that. And if I have to work for the next decade, just like I have the last decade, I am going to help that daughter of mine <laughs> see positivity in the world around her. Reframing. Excuse me, framing our mind. There's two parts here I want to hit. We've, we've already touched on the first one pretty extensively. But I want to break these down. It's the foundational, the first part is the foundational framework. It's the mental muscle memory you've built to process what you perceive. The foundational frame is your point of view. It's where you come from and what shapes your core mental operations. It'd be like being on a mountain 
and looking across, glassing to see if you can identify the elk and where the big bull is. You guys know what I like to do on mountains. And you don't see anything. So you actually have to move your point of view or your perspective. And sometimes moving just six feet opens up a new angle. And now I can see area that I did not see before. But it requires what? Movement. It requires action. You don't get to sit there and be like, well, I sure wish I could see a different angle. There's probably elk over there. You have to move. The second is the filter you use to look, the the filter you look through to perceive and interpret. It's what you've actually got to use to see. The filter frame is what you choose to focus on and how you interpret relationships, circumstances, and events in your life. Groeschel, again, says it this way. The filters you have shape how you see life. Change the filter. Change how you feel. It's not the facts that are different. It's the frame. For a follower of Jesus, both our foundations and our filter need reworked and they need restored in a process called reframing. This is the word that we use to define what it is that we do. Listen, to reframing is again two parts. It's, it's rebuilding your mind's foundational assumptions, its core mental muscle based on something different. Look at Romans. Look at Romans 8, 5, and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Look at this. Where are you setting your mind? Where are you establishing the roots, putting the roots down to grow? What is it that you are actually going to embed yourself into so that that goodness that God has for you can grow out of it? To set, to set in this passage is to establish or put down something on a type of foundation. What type foundation are you going to choose, church? Are you going to hear the word of the Lord and then do what he says? Or are you going to listen to a noise and then not put into place what he says? Every time you come here and every time you walk out that door, you get to make that choice. Every time you get up in the morning, you get to make that choice. You get to make that choice 30 minutes into your day. You get to make that choice at lunchtime, halfway through between lunch and five o'clock, which for me is the worst time of the day. Three o'clock is when I want to be like, come on, I want to quit right now. I want to nap. I purposely don't schedule a lot of three o'clock meetings. I have to choose. It's it's part of the day. It's the part of the day that I have to be the most focused on who the Lord is and what he's called me into. I just want to quit at three o'clock. I don't know why. Maybe someday I'll understand. 
The second part of reframing is creating a different way or filter, that is, what you look through, of interpreting something or someone you experience. Look at Colossians. Colossians 3 says, since then you have been raised with Christ. You've been given new life. He has saved you. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. To set, this kind of set, is also to aim or direct your thoughts to run through a filter of truth according to God's view. Let me show you. One of the best illustrations, and I absolutely stole it straight from Craig Rochelle. Let me show you what this looks like, okay? There, there, in, is he's describing reframing. This illustration just so captivated my attention. Look at, see this picture right here? The same person, the same person wakes up in the morning to the same, to this picture, right? And you can take your frame or your filter, and you can hold it over this part of the image, this, this setting, and you can say, everything that's gonna happen today is awful because the people I work with are idiots because the boss I have doesn't like me because the money I make is not enough because I'm not smart enough to do the job that everyone else thinks I'm smart enough to do because my kids are the most ungrateful, whiny, runny-nosed kids on the planet and they're sick every five seconds. I, I just think it would be better if I didn't get out of bed. Have you heard that before? Have you thought that before? I know I have. Look at this same picture. You can get up and you can literally change that narrative and you can say, I wonder what God has in store for me today. I wonder what gifts that he has put in me, that he has enlivened by his spirit, I can actually use to bring about the goodness and the good purposes that he has today. I can't believe that he gave me the spouse he did. I can't believe that I get to have kids that I get to pour into, that I get to help draw near to God, that I get to change who they are as their parent. I can't believe that either for some of you. <clears throat> um, I, I can't believe that I get paid to do what I do. After the last two years when so many of us lost our jobs. Or how about reframing this one? I lost my job and I might as well just quit now. What if Losing your job catapults you into a career that is the most extraordinary change that you could ever imagine. It, this is all because a frame shifted and you chose a godly filter. You chose to not establish yourself on the flesh to fixate on what is wrong with the world but to establish yourself on the Holy Spirit and to turn your gaze 
on the goodness of God, no matter what your circumstances are around you. That's the change. I'm going to kick this and knock it over. And I'm just going to pre-frame that for you guys so that nobody's freaked out when I do that. Okay. Groeschel said it this way. You can't often control what happens to you, but you can always control how you frame it. I actually added the often and the always. And I'm going to tell you, I disagreed with the great Craig Groeschel on this one. Here's why. If you say you can't control what happens to you, I don't think think you're accepting that when God created you and formed you and breathed the ruah of life into you, he said, now you go out and you take dominion over this world and you subdue that world and you make a difference in that world. I think sometimes it's really easy when we think I can't control what happens to me to stop right there and play the victim when there are so many people around us going through harder things. But instead, we're going to stop right there because I couldn't control it. But look then at the next line. But you can always, I, I do, I think you can always control how you frame whatever happens to you in the day. To be crystal clear about what we're talking about. Let's go back to Jesus' example from Matthew that we looked at earlier. This kind of foundational mental framework we're gonna rebuild and gain as followers of Jesus is a mental framework, listen, just like his. You as a follower of Jesus, are called to have the mind of Christ. Don't believe me? Philippians says it this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here's what a just like Jesus mindset is. It's a foundation built on God's truth that is what God thinks and a point of view that aims at the spiritual, what Jesus calls meaningful. I think one of the most profound things that you can do as a follower of Jesus is look at all the world around you and say, God, what kind of meaning do you want me to go make out there? Not what kind of success, not what kind of achievement, not what kind of wealth. No, no, what kind of meaning is he calling you to move into and to make into existence around you? It's the cultural mandate from Genesis right out of the gates. You're meaning makers. There's oodles and scads and gobs of passages in the scriptures that tell us what the mindset of Christ actually is, okay? But this one, this one that 90% of you chose as your life verse, I'm actually gonna take apart for a second. And let me tell you, that scared me a little bit this week because I think it's so overdone that people don't care about it. Listen to this passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Look at, this is really simple, but it's so simple we miss it. Do you know what trust in the Lord with all your heart means? Don't lean on your own understanding. (laughs) Don't interpret reality through a God-less or a fleshly filter. Stop doing that. You have opportunity, tools that he's given you 
to think and interpret reality differently if you say to this insidious, horrific lie that culture feeds us every day that absolutely no one should be able to interpret your experience for you and no one should tell you what's right or wrong. You must lean on your own understanding, your own cognitive bias. Will you please think with me for just a second? This happened this afternoon and I threw it in here. Talking, I'm talking to one of my kids who said to me, please do not name me. <clears throat> but the conversation went like this. Yeah, um, when I was in fifth grade, we did some stupid stuff. But now that I'm a freshman, some of you, some of you now know who that is. Please don't share. I never said a name. Okay. Stays in here. Guys, shut the camera off for just a second. But now that I'm a freshman, I just see how stupid some of that stuff was. And I thought to myself, if every one of us isn't able to do that, then you're lying. How many of you are like, yeah, my 15-year-old self would have told my 10-year-old self, you're an idiot. How many of your 25-year-old selves would have said to your 15-year-old self, well, you were a moron. And how many 35-year-old selves would have looked at your 25-year-old self and said, I don't know how you survived. Keep going. Those of you who are older in here, you may have gained some wisdom, but you know what? You're still an idiot. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Me too. So this idea that we're going to live out our cognitive bias, that our messed up mental framework is how we're going to choose to live our lives. Nah. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, was like... Um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's right. And he doesn't stop there. He says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Listen, it doesn't stop there. The most primary example and the most extraordinary example in all of the Bible one who lived that verse out completely and perfectly is Jesus. That's right. Guys, Jesus, 10% of what he actually said in the Gospels was straight quotation of Scripture. Jesus, who it seems would have had the right to just kind of say whatever he would have wanted, right? 10% of what he said was quotation of already written Old Testament scripture. If you cut Jesus, he bled scripture. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word came down and dwelt among us in the form of Jesus. Now listen to me, listen to me, hanging on the cross, bleeding for us. He quoted Psalm 22, yeah. 1. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's about to breathe his last and he's quoting scripture. Now, if you trust Jesus, if you trust him 
himself, to have immersed himself in the word of God enough to save you, then now you immerse yourself in the word of God so that you can take him out into the world and say, look at this foundation that I'm standing on. Reframing. I want to put it in, in one different perspective for you. And I want, to, I want to use a narrative arc to do it. In storytelling, there are four primary characters in every good story. If you don't have one of these characters, you do not have a good story. The first is the victim. The character who feels like they're stuck with no ability to change. The second is the villain. This is the character who makes others feel small. The third is the hero. It's the character who's willing to face their challenges and transform and change. And the fourth is the guide. It's the character who helps make heroes out of others around them. I would love to preach an entire series on these characters, but tonight I'm only going to focus on two. The first is the victim and the second is the hero. And I want to set this up by telling you a story. I was 18 years old and to the absolute dismay of my parents, I shoved all that I owned, which was a very meager amount, in a rucksack in the back of my S15 pickup truck the night, the night that I, that I had my graduation party. Not the next day, the night. People are leaving and I'm like, I'm going west, baby. Go west, young man, they said, so I'm going west. My parents tried everything they could, they honestly, to dissuade me. They're like, what, what, what are you doing out there? I'm going to guide school. I'm gonna figure out how to be a big game guide in the mountains of the west. It's a dream. I want to do that dream. And so I packed everything into that truck and I set off and I got out there and I went through some of the most brutal (laughs) challenges, some of the most extraordinary difficulty of my life. And I would tell you, I was not ready for it. I'm going to give you just one instance. We, I, uh, I went to guide school. I got hired on in the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness in the middle of Idaho with some of the steepest inclines and declines in all of the West. And in the Frank Church River of No Return is a place where you cannot use any motorization except for the airstrip. An airplane is allowed to come in and it's allowed to fly out. No chainsaws, no generators. Everything is done by cross-cut saw. Mules and horses is what you use to get around. And I was, honestly, at 18, I was like, bring it, baby. I loved this experience. And some of it was the hardest experience I've ever gone through. There's one particular week in July. It was near the end of July. We were clearing trail. And... um, we, we would meet the airplane on a Sunday afternoon when they would bring in our supplies. It was myself, I think it's been enough years that I'll name these other guys. Myself, Chris, Buff, and Kirk. Yeah, Buff, yeah. 
if you thought things about Buff, you're right. Just, you know. Um, the airplane came down. Doors open. There's supposed to be groceries for the next week. Now we're clearing trail all week long with cross-cut saws up. Did I mention the steepest inclines and the most incredible declines? Did I mention that before? I mean, we are, it, I bet you we're going through five, 6,000 calories a day and the door of this plane opens and the pilot's like, here's the mule feed. And there's the cubes for the mules. And I'm looking around. And I'm like, where's the me feed? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, I, I didn't get an order for that. So I pull out the mule feed and I head back up to the uh, base camp that we were working out of. I'm the youngest of all four of these guides. And I walk in and I'm like, so yeah, there's no, there was no groceries in the airplane. So I'm not sure what we're going to do about food this week. And in an instant, the environment changed drastically. Buff, remember Buff, Buff was 33 and he sat down and he looked at me and, well, you expect, yeah, you think, you think I'm going to do any work for that idiot that we're working for? Put that, uh, can you guys put that slide back up? You think I'm going to do anything with the moron that he is? I am telling you that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. We can't get any work done. You know what? I saved some of that Jack Daniels. We're going to sit here and we're going to drink Jack Daniels all week. And then when he comes in next week, we'll just tell him, you didn't send us any food, so we didn't clear any trail. Kirk, also older, lots older with Buff. He's right here. Oh my goodness, I can't believe we're expected to work without any food. I, that's the meanest thing anybody's ever done to me. Chris was right here. Just to be honest, I was thinking about this story ahead of time. I was like, what was Chris? Well, Chris was like, I don't know. I was right here. I was like, I, I, mean, I don't like it. The circumstance isn't good, but what, what, you know, what could we do? So here's what I did. I went out and I got these stones. They were jagged edged stones and they, they were like a disc. Some of you are disc golfers. And if you whipped them just right, man, they, they worked as a pretty spectacular weapon. And there were these grouse. And they were the dumbest grouse I have ever seen. Literally, quail from heaven. Manna from heaven. This was like an Israelite experience for me. Now, I threw my shoulder out. No joke. I threw so hard and for so long. And I got six grouse that night. And we had meat. Now, there was literally oatmeal packets from the week before that was left over and a half jar of peanut butter and Jack Daniels. <laughs> and so Buff and Chris, I'm not kidding. They, they drank Jack Daniels and they complained for a week. I'm sorry, Buff and Kirk. Chris and I were like, I mean, day three, we cut the corners off Ziploc baggies and we went up to a high mountain stream, real narrow. And one of us held the Ziploc baggie in the cascading water and the other one started like 30 feet back and ran through the water and scared the trout. And the trout, like little sardine sized trout would get caught and we'd just eat them raw right there. Oh. It's the same circumstance. 
It's the absolutely same circumstance. And did the employer mess up? Absolutely. We were starving. Like, yeah, I now know what it feels like to nearly starve to death. But not like kids in Africa know what it's like to nearly starve to death. I lost a lot of weight. And I had a blast. And we learned that we could do things. That we could make a difference. That we could take agency. The, the things that my parents had taught me were... I'm, I'm applying them. I'm like, look, there, we can make a difference. This is actually good. And at the end of that week, Buff and Kirk got fired. And Chris and I stayed on as employees. Now, I do not think that that makes it right that we starved. Okay, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that our decisions in those critical moments of how we frame the situation around us changes the trajectory of your future. It just does. So victim mindset, there are really, really actual victims in the world. I don't for a second deny that. People that have things done to them that are awful, horrific, and brutal. The problem is that often, even after we come to know Jesus, we tend to stay in victimhood instead of recognizing that he has saved us, that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness, that he has promised to be the author and the perfecter of our faith and to move out. If, you're, if you are in a victim mentality here tonight, I am asking you to wrestle that thing down Amen. and to say, I don't have to stay there. It usually looks like fixating and complaining about what happened. You just can't get over it. Every single time this topic comes up, you're right there. See, or you stay captive to stinking thinking about yourself and your situation. Third, and I hear this one a lot, you blame God for br the brutality of sin in the world, but you blame God or another external locus of control. And then last, you minimize meaning. That is, instead of making meaning, you avoid the challenges, run from the difficulty, and hide from the growing pains. Or, with one shift, with one shift away from the character who feels they're stuck with no ability to change to the character who's willing to face their challenges and transform. Look at what this looks like. This is where you attack. This is where you move forward. This is where you decide you're going to follow everything that God has for you. And it, it looks like this. Guys, move to that next slide, a hero slide. You thank God for what didn't happen. We hit a deer this, this past summer. And I'm telling you, this deer thought it was like WWE. It jumped off of a cliff alongside the road as we were passing a down tree. So instantaneously, the front end, I mean, it landed on the hood of our van. Absolutely nothing you could do. 
and immediately dollar signs start flashing through my head. But you know what? Nobody was hurt. None of my family was hurt. Everybody was okay. And we thanked God for what didn't happen in that circumstance. The next one, practice pre-framing. This is deciding how we will frame a situation before it happens. This is getting up in the morning and imagining you live the day and you got to the end of the day and then you had a chance to look back through the day and think to yourself, what didn't I do? What could have I done different? But it's still 6 a.m. in the morning. Now go live the day the way you have the ability to live the day because you pre-framed it. And the third one is look for God's goodness. Just real quick, uh, I'm part of Lowell Ministry Alliance here in town. There's a 97-year-old pastor that's been joining us and he showed up to a pretty dead environment two weeks ago. It was pretty spiritless. And he said, let me, let me tell you guys something. I'm 97 years old because the joy of the Lord is my strength. He said, every day, the joy, not, not my strength is joy, but the joy of the Lord makes me strong every single day. Look for the goodness of God around you. And then fourth, maximize the meaning, no matter the mayhem, no matter what, maximize meaning all around you. Ask the question, how can I create purpose by reframing this? And then act on that. Ask the question, how can I grow stronger by pre-framing an intentional future? I, we're gonna close. We're gonna hear the song Rebuilder. And as we close, I wanna, I wanna share just one thing with you that just hit me today, honestly. We went to a retreat, 41 hours retreat. It's a retreat with a bunch of pastors a couple of months ago and we were talking about the last couple of years and uh, it was heavy. <laughs> um, these are pastors that have, you know, they've succeeded <laughs> through the last crazy years as pastors. They've gone through it, dealt with it. It's been insane. And as we were talking um, on the way back from that, it just struck me all the things that we've been through in the last two years. And I don't mean to make this all about pastors. I know, I know you guys have been through it in all the different places you're apart, but this is specific to pastors. And it just, I started thinking, you know, what occurred almost two years ago to, to this date. And I'll tell you, it was a Wednesday afternoon and I was planning on preaching I was up to preach and there was this foreboding wave of something of which we did not know, but it was devastating. It was coming across the ocean at us. And by Friday, I was gonna preach to a screen and become a tele-evangelist. I'm used to preaching to people, not a screen. And um, 
sure enough, I'm preaching, uh, our tech team turned this place into a studio and you weren't here that weekend. And it was crazy. And then for the next three months, we were closed. And I got to tell you, the fear of not being able to gather as a church, it was excruciating, but, but we couldn't. And then we're going to open back up, or we think we're going to open back up, but the vitriol around how you're going to open back up, if you open back up, you're killing people. The other side is if you don't open back up, you are a fearful, faithless human being. These are Christians. And then, okay, we're, we're going to open back up, but, you know, if you wear a mask, you're a flaming liberal. And if you don't wear a mask, you are a murderer. And, and, and it continued in the hatred into this growing racial tension. You guys remember it? Just this awful racial, and there was no right way out of that. It didn't matter. And then politics on top of that. And I started thinking about, I was like, you know, coming back from this retreat, what about reframing that? Because we can. You know, my family did. My family decided we were going to raise a batch of puppies together. It was awesome. I got to spend cherished time with my kids who were very frustrated that they were digital, but they were home and I got to spend time with them that I normally do not get. And you know what? I did learn how to be a televangelist. Our teaching team preached in front of a camera and we made that thing heal. My wife became a certified teacher in record time because the schools needed her. Our online platform went through a drastic and beneficial overhaul as a church and began reaching wider and wider audiences. Our church was able to help feed enormous numbers of hungry kids in our community. We developed stronger compassion ministries here to meet the greater needs as they hit. And after hemorrhaging out for six months, we, we lost 40 or 50%. We've rebuilt. You've rebuilt. And we've gained in the place of those losses. And a couple of weekends ago, we had baptisms here and we had 12 people baptized and we had 1,500 people here for a weekend. And I do not share that because of what we did. I share that because of what God did. Because we were willing to say, we're going to reframe this sucker. We're going to move where you say and how you say. We're going to follow you. We're going to plant ourselves in your word. And you guys... This is what we're called to do. Yes. Now we're going to hear Rebuilder. And I hope that your heart is moved. And I want, if it is, I want you to get up during Rebuilder and come down here and pray. 
And I want you to share with God the places that negativity and cynicism and disdain for your fellow man has crept in and has stopped the goodness he wants out of your life. And I want you to come down and I want you to be part of this. If you have been so cruel to yourself in the negativity bias that you don't know how to move forward. And I want you with people who love you to pray, God, help me identify the places in my soul that need to hear what you say about me instead of what my negative narrative is.